congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to Christmas time? I suspect most of you are. Maybe you enjoy a break from work or school. Maybe you look forward to time with family and friends. Maybe you look forward to uh, drinking hot chocolate while the snow falls outside. And those are enjoyable things. I'm sure we also look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Of course, He is the reason why we are celebrating Christmas. What makes the birth of Christ so special? Why do we have such a great reason to celebrate at this time? Well, we celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world. We know Christ is the one who came to pay for our sins. We celebrate the gift of God's grace to sinners. Some of these things are found in our text this morning, but our text also gives us more. In the birth of Christ, we also celebrate the victory of good over evil, of light over darkness, of God over Satan. We celebrate Satan's defeat. We celebrate God's faithfulness. And in this text, we also celebrate the birth of the shepherd king who leads his people to victory. And so as I preach you God's word this morning, I'll do so under the following theme. Despite the worst attacks of Satan, God brings the Savior from and for his people. And we'll look at four specific things. First of all, we'll look specifically at the, the woman in this text, then the woman's enemy, which is a dragon. Uh, next, the woman's son. And finally, the woman's salvation. Now, at the beginning of our text, the book of Revelation, the vision of John, John is another vision. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, as we look at this vision, we might wonder, now, who is this woman? And why is she important? Well, some have identified this woman as Mary. And indeed, some respects, in some respects, the vision matches with Mary. The woman matches with Mary. After all, the child Mary gives birth to is Jesus Christ, and, and the child here in this text is, of course, Jesus Christ. But I would say Mary is only a part of what this woman represents. Yes, she is part of this woman, but the woman in our text is not exclusively her, not at all. Closer look reveals something else. This woman represents the faithful people of God. And in this section of Revelation 12, primarily, but not exclusively, the Old Testament people of God. You see, the Old Testament, it often pictures God's people collectively as a woman. You can see that throughout the pages of the prophets, for example. 
One example is Jeremiah 4, verse 31. I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, the people of God. And her clothing also hints at this identity. Clothing of the sun, moon, and stars. After all, think of Genesis 37, of Joseph's dreams about his mother and father and his brothers bowing down to him. In his dream, there was the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. So they represented his family, Jacob or Israel, and his sons. Verse 1 gives us a glorious picture of the woman who represents the people of God. Look at her clothing, clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. She has a, a crown of 12 stars on her head. And this clothing pictures for us the heavenly identity of God's people. See, God's people are not like others in this world who don't know him We are not just of the flesh as are unbelievers. We are not just only of this world. God's people also have a heavenly identity. We are born from above. Our citizenship is in heaven, as Philippians 3 says. And this clothing also pictures the similarity, the close affinity between God's people and God himself. Listen to what Psalm 104 says about our God. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering covering yourself with light as with a garment. Or Revelation 1, which gives us a picture of the Son of God. It says his face shone like the sun shining in full strength, and he holds seven stars in his right hand. And here God's people are clothed with the sun, crowned with stars, showing their likeness, their relationship to God and the Savior, God's Son. So this is the beautiful picture of God's people seen through the eyes of faith. And that identity is still ours today. And even more so, we have been raised with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. But that beautiful picture of verse 1 comes slamming back down to earth in verse 2. It says, The woman was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and of the agony of giving birth. And this is God's people seen through the lens of this broken world. Even though the people of God have a glorious heavenly identity, they're still immersed in a world suffering under the curse. And the people of God feel that still. And we need to remember both aspects of the church's experience. In Christ, we have a glorious identity. We have a glorious future. In Christ, we are at the center of God's focus of the universe, as it were, the sun, moon, and stars revolving around the people of God. And that's reason for rejoicing. But that doesn't mean there's no room for grieving. We live in a broken world 
we still feel the effects of the curse. There is groaning and pain. The church of the Old Testament and New Testament struggles under tribulation and trial. We feel that today, and so we cry out. But there's something even more important in these first two verses. When we see this scene with the woman struggling to give birth, and and later on the, the dragon aiming to devour her child, we should think, first of all, of Genesis 3 and the fall into sin. And that's what this scene, or sorry, after, all the, after the fall into sin, see, God pronounced a number of judgments. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. And that's what we see in verse 2. And in Genesis 3, to the devil, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's what the scene here in Revelation 12 is all about. Ever since those pronouncements by God after the fall, there's been that struggle endured by the people of God to bring forth that promised offspring, the Savior. And that's what so much of the Old Testament is about. God promised to bring a child from his people, the seed of the woman, who would save them from the curse. But the struggle to see the fulfillment of that promise occurs on almost every page of the Old Testament. Started already right after Adam and Eve with Cain and Abel. Cain murdering his brother, seed of the woman. We see it continue in Abraham and Sarah's childlessness. This promised Savior is supposed to come from them. They cannot bear children unless God grants it. We see it again in Isaac and Rebekah's childlessness. We see it in the struggle between Jacob and Esau. We see it in the problem of Jacob's family and his children We see it with Israel and Egypt and Pharaoh's attack on the Israelites. We see it in the problems of the book of Judges, the problems in the times of the kings, in the exile of Israel and after their return, you name it. The Old Testament is one big struggle to bring about the promised Messiah who would come and would finally save God's people. And that struggle over all that history is is pictured by this woman of Revelation 12 going through these labor pains, trying to bring forth this promised child. Brings us to our second point. So the woman here represents the people of God. She's made up of believers from both the Old Testament and New Testament ages. But we see something else here besides just the woman Verse 3 introduces another character. John writes, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads uh, seven diadems. And later on in this chapter, in uh, verse 9, 
the dragon is clearly identified. There it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Right? This verse, verse 9, calls him that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the world. And notice again how that, that connects back to Genesis 3 and the fall into sin. Right? The serpent or the devil came to Eve in the garden and deceived her. And by his deception, he incited humans to rebel against Almighty God. And look at his description. He has seven heads showing his incredible intelligence. His ten horns shows his incredible strength and power. His seven diadems, a type of crown associated with kingship, shows his great authority on earth. And that is the devil. The devil is the upstart ruler of this world. He's not the true king, of course, God is. But he has attempted a cosmic coup against God. He wants to be king. He wants to be worshipped instead of God. And he wants to keep everyone in this world from honoring and serving God as king. And the crowns in this vision also point to how the devil demonstrates his power on earth so often through ungodly kingdoms. Through ungodly kingdoms who persecute and attack God's people. See, Satan is not only the head of the spiritual kingdom of darkness. He is also at work in the wicked kingdoms of this world. For one example, think of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh was the king of that evil human kingdom on earth. But behind Pharaoh stood the devil. Isaiah 51 talks about this when it says, Awake, O arm of the Lord, was it not you who cut Egypt in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Or Ezekiel 29, verse 3, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. And in the time of the New Testament and afterwards, the dragon's authority was so often expressed in the Roman Empire and its emperors. See, so often the Roman emperors demanded the people give them the honor owed only to God. And often the Roman Empire persecuted God's people. We can still see these things today as well. Verse 4 says, The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And what does this mean? Well, it can refer to two different things. Often in the book of Revelation, the stars represent angels. So verse 4 could then be describing the, the fall of the rest of the angels who joined Satan in his rebellion. That's a possibility. But these stars can also refer to the people of God that 
The stars in verse 1 seem to refer to the people of God in some way. Daniel 12 references the people of God shining like the stars also. And verse 4 could then be describing how Satan attacks God's people and is given limited victory over them for a time. But in any case, what we have here is a picture of the devil's great cunning, his power and authority, and we see his absolute desire to attack God's people, to do everything he can to stop their salvation. This is our great enemy. This is his power. This is his cunning. Can't take that lightly. He's still our enemy. He still incites ungodly rulers of the world to persecute God's people. He still incites the unbelieving world to persecute and to attack what is right. When we see this picture, we might lose heart. The original readers might have lost heart. Here we have this woman representing the people of God. And here we have the woman's enemy, a fierce and powerful dragon. How is this woman supposed to survive this battle? How are the people of God supposed to survive against this great enemy, Satan? You see, we still face this same battle today. Later on in Revelation 12, it says, A dragon was furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So how is this woman, how are God's people going to survive and, and even win this battle? Well, it all has to do with God's promises in Genesis 3 again. God would raise up the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the, of the serpent, the devil. And so the entire hope of the people of God, not only the Old Testament, but also us, our entire hope rests in this promised child God promised to bring from the woman and for the woman. From the people of God and for the people of God. And the devil knew that too. That's why we see him standing before this woman uh, as she was about to give birth. He knows his downfall rests in this child. So he stands there ready to devour it as soon as the child is born. That brings us to our next point. So here's the dragon, the devil, waiting to devour the woman's child as soon as she gives birth. See, he wants more than anything to hold on to power so he wants to kill this child. He's trying to crush the seed of the woman, defying the word of God pronounced in Genesis 3. And we see many examples of this sort of thing uh, throughout the Bible. Again, Satan tried to do this very thing through Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh tried to drown all the male children of Israel. Right? Similar to this picture here in our text. Satan tried to do this through the reign of Athaliah in, in uh, 2 Kings 11. Athaliah, that daughter of Ahab, set out to destroy all the royal family of David, killing all his offspring. 
And if she succeeded, God's promises to David would fail and the Messiah would not come. Satan tried to do this through King Herod in Matthew 2, which we read about. Right? He heard about the birth of the king of the Jews. He set out to kill all the boys in Bethlehem two years old and younger. That's Satan's attacks to defy God's plan and God's promises. But notice verse 5. The woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. Here we get such a quick snapshot of Christ's life and victory. The devil wanted to destroy the baby king, the heir of the world, but he failed. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. Christ ultimately became king despite the devil's worst attacks. And the irony is that ultimately it was through another of Satan's attacks that Christ became king, that he was enthroned. The devil was at work to, to keep on trying to have Christ killed. Eventually he, he succeeded in the crucifixion. He wanted Jesus killed and ultimately he was able to. He thought he had devoured Christ once and for all. But it was actually through that death of Christ that Christ became king and sealed the devil's defeat. For it was after Christ died that God the Father snatched him from the grip of death. He then exalted his son to his right hand in heaven, made him king of the world and heir of the world. Think of what we sang from Psalm 2. I will make the nations your heritage. Devil ultimately defeated himself in the death of Christ. Now Christ, as king of this world, will rule the nations. Satan's kingdom will be overthrown. That was God's plan all along. Again, Psalm 2. The Lord said to his son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's also Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And we must hold on to this truth. You see, Christ is king of this world. He is there. His eyes are upon us. And Satan still tries to attack God's church. He still tries to stop the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. But ultimately, we can know, because of the enthronement of Jesus Christ, The devil will fail, and Christ's kingdom will prevail. That brings us to our last point. So Christ became king of the world upon his resurrection and ascension, and this is for the woman's own salvation. The woman struggled mightily in birth pains, bringing the Savior into the world, but the pain was worth it. 
By God's power, her child was her own Savior. And the description of her, of her son in this text speaks of that salvation. Verse 5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And we could also translate verse 5 like this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to shepherd all the nations with a staff of iron. That is a shepherd's staff of iron. You see, this child is not an ordinary king. He's the great son of David, so he is the shepherd king. And what a difference that is to this fiery dragon. Now, Satan doesn't care for us like a shepherd. He's only a cruel master. And what a difference Jesus Christ is to King Herod. Did Herod have a shepherd's heart? Not even close. He only thought about himself. He was willing to kill everybody and anybody so that he could hold on to power. But what did Christ do? As the shepherd king, he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life to give us life. It's through that selfless giving of our shepherd king that he gained a victory and gives us a victory. And that's why Christmas is such a joyful celebration as well. God has given us a shepherd king who will reign forever. And he is reigning right now. Finally, we have a king who serves us instead of making us slaves of sin and death. He is so unlike this dragon, the devil. The devil only wants to tear down and destroy and kill and enslave. But Christ, the Lamb of God, came to destroy his work. In Christ, we have a king who gives us life. We have a king who served us all the way to going to the cross to, to bear our punishment, to bear our penalty. That is our king whom we worship and adore. We have a king who gave up his life to transfer us into his kingdom that forever we can praise God and enjoy everlasting life. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The suffering and groaning of the people of God, which is pictured so clearly by this woman in verse 2, is in travail. It will end. One day it will end forever because of our shepherd king who, who came to serve us. So we always have hope. Now here he is described as a king who rules from heaven with an, an iron shepherd's staff. Usually, king would have an iron scepter, shepherd would have a wooden staff. Here they're combined, an iron shepherd's staff. And in this, we, we also see Exodus themes coming out again. Think of Moses in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh commanded that all the baby boys of Israel be thrown into the Nile. Moses was one child that escaped, right? We see the dragon seeking to devour the seed of the woman, 
casting all those babies into the Nile. Moses was the child that escaped. And he too was snatched up to a throne, so to speak. He even became a prince in Pharaoh's court. Kind of like our text with Christ. And God then appointed Moses together with Aaron to shepherd his people Israel. And how often in the book of Exodus do we not read about Moses' staff, right, in his leading? Moses' staff, he's the shepherd of God's people. And that staff of Moses was used both to comfort God's people and it was used for combat against God's enemies. Right? That staff of Moses was used for the good of Israel. Think of how Moses stretched his staff over the Red Sea. God then parted the sea so Israel could safely escape Pharaoh. But the staff was also used to combat the Egyptians. Think of how Moses used the staff to signal the beginning of the next plague. And it's the same thing with the staff of iron from our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. With that staff, he leads us away from the tyranny of the devil. He guides us through his word. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb freed Israel from slavery to Pharaoh, so the blood of the Lamb of God frees us from slavery to Satan. And just as God led Israel through the wilderness by the hand of Moses and Aaron, so God is leading us through this broken world by the rule of Jesus Christ from heaven. Christ is not ignoring us from his throne. His eyes are always on us as our loving shepherd. And he's leading us, his sheep, through this broken world. He's leading us to springs of living water. He's leading us through the wilderness to a place where there will be no more crying or pain or suffering. That is what our shepherd is doing from heaven, our shepherd king. And this is why we rejoice at this time of year. Our shepherd king will lead us to full and final salvation. It's true we can't see him now, but he is still with us. And with that staff, Christ not only protects his own people, but he also punishes his enemies. Remember, it's a staff of iron. It's used both to comfort and for combat. With that staff of iron, he crushes his enemies, as we sang from Psalm 2. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Christ will do that when he returns in judgment. And this staff of iron is a representation of that. He will crush the head of his enemies. And that judgment has already started now through Christ's reign from heaven. Think again of the book of Exodus Right, God so often began the plagues on Egypt through Moses' staff. Well, in the book of Revelation, we also read about plagues. Plagues coming on an unrepentant world. We see them come with the seven seals, with the seven trumpets, and with the seven bowls of God's wrath. The comforting thing about that, though, is we can see from the book of Revelation that it's under God's control. Right? It's under our king's control. God, God is bringing his judgment on the city of man. 
humans united against God. You can see that in our world today, too. Deadly diseases unleashed on this world are not outside God's control. It's also a sign that God is destroying Satan's kingdom and one, one day give his people full salvation. And yes, for the time being, the church does need to wait for their full redemption. You can see at the end of our text that even though the woman's child was snatched up to heaven, the woman herself stayed on earth. We're not yet in the promised land. We are protected by God. Her sex says, A woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. As we await the return of Christ, waiting can be tiring, can be hard, but Christ will return. And he is still shepherding us through this world. God, who promises faithful, so we can count on God's protection right to the end. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by singing hymn 55. <clears throat>